and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers. Thank you for joining us. You'll notice several windows on the console. We do encourage you to move these to your liking and minimize what you don't need. There's a group chat available to communicate with the other viewers if you're interested. You're also able to submit questions for the faculty by clicking the Q&A button toward the bottom of your console. Questions will be addressed during our Q&A session at the end of the presentation. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be able to access the evaluation and a test for credit by clicking the Claim Credit button. Your thoughts and comments are important and will help us develop CME activities and similar topics in the future. We'd like to also welcome our Facebook viewers today. Matt will be moderating the Facebook chat and you can ask your questions in the chat for us to direct to faculty. He will also be posting the link to Claim Credit for viewing the webinar. We are pleased to welcome two expert faculty members, Dr. Heather Bell, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Infection Prevention at the Tulsa Spine and Specialty Hospital. And also joining us is Dr. Jose Mercado, Medical Director at Alice Deck Pay Alex Peck Day Hospital, an associate hospital epidemiologist at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, as well as the host of the CURE podcast. Dr. Bell, Dr. Mercado, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. Okay, these yeah, are the faculty. Great, thank you, Dr. Bell. These are the faculty's disclosures. And this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. The learning objectives for this program are to describe best practices for managing patients with mild to moderate COVID-19, appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, review in development therapeutics trial data and potential indications, and evaluate current data on vaccines. We do have a few knowledge questions to kick off of our webinar. If you do not see the submit button, please scroll down as it sometimes gets cut off on smaller screens. Let's start with our first pretest question. A 22-year-old previously healthy patient with no underlying conditions has mild COVID-19. Which of the following is or are recommended for this patient? Is it dexamethasone, monoclonal antibodies, home isolation and symptom monitoring only, or remdesivir? Okay, and we'll revisit that one at the end of the webinar. And the next question is, monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? Any patient, any non-hospitalized patient, uh, 18 years of age or older, non-hospitalized patient, 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease, Patients hospitalized for COVID-19, 12 years of age or older, requiring oxygen support. Okay, and our next question. According to the COVID-19 Act 1 pivotal trial, which group of patients benefited the most from remdesivir? 
One, all included patients benefited equally. Two, patients not receiving oxygen. Three, patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Or four, patients receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Okay, great. And our uh, final pretest question is, which monoclonal antibody currently has the best data about retained potency against circulating variants, such as P1 and B1351? Uh, bamlanivimab or bamlanivimab etazivimab combination or casarivimab and imdevimab or all of the above? Okay, thank you. And again, we will revisit these questions at the end of the webinar. Um, but now, for now, I'll turn the presentation over to our faculty, Dr. Jose Mercado. Dr. Mercado, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Faith. Uh, I'd like to start us off with where we are in the pandemic. And what you're seeing here is our fall and winter surge. Now, uh, after we started to see a decline uh, from our fall and winter surge, we started to have conversations around the seasonality of the virus, whether we are achieving herd immunity with the premise of the virus being underreported earlier uh, in the pandemic, and whether we're uh, seeing some uh, benefits of early benefits of the vaccine. Now, flash forward a few weeks, we're, we're now seeing an uptick again, unfortunately, and maybe a threat uh, to yet another surge. So hopefully not, but uh, the conversations now is around uh, specifically the younger demographic as to whether they are feeling less vulnerable from the disease and maybe experiencing uh, pandemic fatigue, therefore uh, engaging in higher risk uh, activities. Uh, another factor is uh, the variants, uh, whether the variants are driving some of the upticks. And, and last but not the least is uh, we do know that uh, a lot of the states are under pressure from different interest industries about reopening. So that's another yet another factor to consider is are we reopening too soon? The good news, though, is that uh, we've consistently seen a decline in our mortality rates. Uh, so just a reminder, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, almost one in four uh, U.S. Uh, patients admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 died. But that rate fell significantly to one in 16 with, uh, within just six months. And there are likely different factors uh, that would explain this uh, that include wider testing for SARS-CoV-2, the clinicians, uh, clinicians uh, learning curves around managing patients uh, with COVID-19. We do now have therapies uh, and the decreasing age of uh, hospitalized patients. Now, that being said, the mortality rate for COVID-19 remains high. So there is definitely still a need for better antivirals and better therapies. 
This is a quick update on the CDC risk factors for severe illness. And what has been added is cystic fibrosis, type 1 diabetes mellitus on top of your type 2, moderate to severe asthma, dementia, stroke, liver disease, uh, overweight patients, and HIV infection. These were previously listed as uh, under the might put a person at a higher risk uh, condition. I think this is a slide that uh, just uh, puts it all together. As you can see here, we have the different features of the disease from asymptomatic to critical illness and how that relates to the pathogenesis. Uh, so just a reminder again for folks, we do have the viral replication phase and the inflammatory phase. And then finally, the potential treatment options, which is your antivirals, antibody therapy, and anti-inflammatory therapy, which we will discuss today. And with that, I would like to turn it over to Dr. Bell. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so glad to be presenting to you today. I do want to mention quickly before I get started uh, that I made these slides very information dense. Uh, that's been done on purpose so that you can review this information uh, at your leisure when it's convenient for you. So I will just be giving a brief overview on each topic. And then of course, also keep in mind, this information is ever-changing and what is standard of care of therapy for today may be obsolete by tomorrow. So, whoops. These are the National Institute of Health levels of illness uh, that help guide our decisions regarding therapeutic interventions, as well as infection control measures and testing protocols. So I will say if you do not have the NIH COVID website earmarked in your favorites on your browser, I highly recommend that you do so. So mild illness is typically able to be treated at home with just supportive care, usually be, uh, via telemedicine visits. Patients should be educated on signs and symptoms to watch for, indicating progression of disease and red flags when they really need to come in and be seen by urgent care or an emergency care physician. Moderate illness uh, patients are usually evaluated in urgent care uh, or ERs, and then they typically lack hypoxia, and thus they don't need antiviral therapy, but they do need to be watched closely. Some of these patients, if they have risk factors, can progress quite quickly, sometimes within hours in the emergency room. They also need to be educated on symptom progression if they get discharged, and of course, if they have any of the comorbidities that put them at risk for severe disease, you should have a discussion with them regarding the monoclonal antibody therapy for prevention of admission. Infection prevention measures um, come into play uh, at the level of moderate illness um, because these are the ones that are being seen at a facility and there is risk of healthcare worker exposure. There are some diagnostic tests that help us in determining who might need to be admitted due to being at increased risk for rapid clinical decline, such as a CT scan uh, showing a lot of ground glass infiltrates, an EKG showing some cardiomyopathies, and a D-dimer indicating a possible risk for profound coagulopathies. 
Severe and critical illness by rights could be a standalone one hour discussion. So extensive review of this is outside of the scope of this lecture, but I will briefly touch on these as a basis for future slides regarding therapeutic options. Severe illness has some specific criteria to meet the definition. Um, this falls under um, specific infection control guidelines due to the need of admission. So most of the time these have uh, hypoxia, which is defined as less than 94% on room air. They have an elevated respiratory rate. They have lung infiltrates in more than 50% of the region scan. And that's typically by CT scan. We typically uh, recommend looking for additional diagnosis in anything that comes into the hospital. It's always a good idea. Um, and again, diagnostic tests help to give us a feel for the risk and possible rapid deterioration of the patients. Critical ill patients have extensive uh, NIH um, recommendations uh, that change often. So if you are a physician that takes care of critically ill patients, I strongly recommend um, getting on the NIH website as there is a, a whole host of recommendations for that level of illness. Most of the recommendations for treating critically ill COVID patients uh, are extrapolated out from the surviving sepsis campaign data. As you know, critically ill patients are protected under a lot of studies and they are so ill that not doing standard of care and having a randomized control trial is almost impossible. The main goals of taking care of critically ill patients include managing all of the underlying comorbidities that they have in addition to taking care of the COVID infection and its sequela. Now back to Dr. Mercado. I would like to start with remdesivir. Um, now the mechanism of action of remdesivir is that it inhibits the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, so it's an antiviral. Uh, the ACT-1 study was a random, a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial where patients did receive 200 milligram loading dose on day one, followed by 100 milligrams daily for up to an addition of nine days. The primary outcome was time to recovery, and this was defined by either discharge from the hospital or hospitalization for infection control purposes only. And what they found is that those who received rendesivir had a median recovery time of 10 days as compared to uh, 15 days among those who received placebo. There was also a trend uh, for improving mortality. However, uh, it was not statistically significant. One thing to note is that uh, it did not appear to improve outcomes in patients who required mechanical ve ventilation or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. This led the investigators to conclude that the timing of initiation of treatment with uh, remdesivir as well as the underlying clinical status of the patient may have important effects on the outcomes of therapy. Therefore, priority should be given to a five-day remdesivir regimen for patients at early stages of severe disease, such as when they are receiving supplemental oxygen but have not yet been intubated, since the benefit is clearest in this uh, population. 
And this is what the NIH and IDSA treatment guidelines say about remdesivir, which is consistent with what we just discussed. Now, I do want to transition to bartizanib. Uh, this is an orally administered selective inhibitor of your Janus kinase 1 and 2. This trial was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Uh, they had 67 trial sites in eight different countries. The patients did receive remdesivir intravenously as a 200 milligram loading dose on day one, followed by a 100 milligram maintenance dose administered daily on days two through 10. Bartizanib was administered as a four milligram daily dose for 14 days or until hospital discharge. And the primary outcome was uh, a measure of uh, time to recovery. What they did see was that there was an observed benefit of combination treatment uh, that was most evident in patients with uh, a baseline ordinal score of five, which is those requiring supplemental oxygen, and, a and an ordinal score of six, uh, which is high flow oxygen or non-invasive ventilation, among whom the median time to recovery was uh, respectively one and eight days sooner with the combination treatment when compared to placebo. So the investigators uh, concluded that uh, with this uh, combination treatment, there would be lower uh, nosocomial infections and thrombosis and faster recovery that also decreases the burden on the healthcare system. And I think this is just a nice slide uh, that uh, summarizes what we just covered. You have the different ordinal scales there. Uh, and as that uh, correlates to the pathogenesis of the disease, which is the viral replication phase and the uh, immune-mediated uh, response. And as you can see, uh, remdesivir, uh, you would see most benefit early on in uh, COVID-19, while dexamethasone has most uh, the benefit uh, later in the disease course. And uh, maybe up until now, dexamethasone has really just been the only medication to have shown a decrease in mortality, particularly in severe to critical disease. So oh, the expectation is bartizanib would uh, live uh, in, um, or would be an option in patients who may not be a candidate for your glucocorticoids. So uh, we do know that with glucocorticoids, uh, these are, have been, these, this medication have been associated with immunosuppression, hospital-acquired infections, GI bleeding, hyperglycemia, and neuromuscular weakness, even with short courses. Uh, there was just a recent press release uh, from the makers of Bartizanib uh, that showed uh, it did not uh, meet statistical uh, significance uh, on their primary endpoint, which was defined as a difference in the proportion of participants progressing to first occurrence of non-invasive ventilation. Uh, however, uh, again, there was a, a trend uh, for a potential effect on mortality. So the peer-reviewed uh, studies uh, will be coming soon around that uh, press release. This is just the NIH IDSA uh, guidelines on remdesivir bartizanib combination. Uh, and now I'd like to transition to convalescent plasma. 
this was a double-blind randomized controlled trial of 160 patients, where patients received 250 milliliters of convalescent plasma with an IgG titer greater than 1 is to 1,000. So these are high titers. Also, the convalescent plasma was administered less than 72 hours after the onset of symptoms, so relatively early in the disease. The primary endpoint is severe respiratory disease, which was defined as respiratory rate of 30 beats, uh, 30 breaths per minute or more, and an oxygen saturation of less than 93% on room air. And what they found is that severe respiratory disease developed in 16% of those who received convalescent plasma and 31% of those who received placebo with a relative risk reduction with convalescent plasma of 48% and, in, and a number needed to treat to avert an episode of severe respiratory disease of seven. And uh, this was just another study that looked more into convalescent plasma and risk of death. And what that showed is that patients who received plasma within three days after diagnosis of COVID-19 had lower risk of death than those who received transfusion later on in their disease course. So similar to what we have just discussed, there may be a role here for convalescent plasma as long as you administer this early in the disease course and using high titers. Uh, with that, I believe I would uh, turn it back to Dr. Bell. Thanks, Dr. Mercado. So this is a quick overview of the basic information about tocilizumab, uh, as well as its mechanism of action. Uh, this is the timeline of the TOSI approval and initial studies showing the efficacy. And of course, the NIH panel recommendations. Um, it does recommend that it is given in combination with dexamethasone for those hospitalized patients who are exhibiting rapid decline, uh, especially with respiratory decompensation. Um, and for recently hospitalized patients who've been admitted to the intensive care unit and require uh, invasive mechanical intervention. Uh, ventilation, as well as non-ICU patients whose oxygen needs are rapidly increasing, or if they have significantly increased inflammatory markers. And this was all based on the recovery trial. Now, keep in mind, therapy recommendations are generalized. So if your clinical assessment of your patient means the world, and their, their needs may supersede any of these guidelines. Here is some of the caveats to using tocilizumab. Always keep these in mind for the patients uh, where this medication should be avoided. And moving into the um, monoclonal antibodies and the immune-based therapies for the treatment of COVID. So this is a brief review of the mechanism of action for the monoclonal antibodies that are now available. Uh, bamlanivimab um, and etesivimab. So it took me a long time to learn all of these. So I, I recommend you take some time in uh, trying to pronounce these. Uh, so um, it does block viral entry into the cells. Uh, it was granted emergency use authorization in February for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID patients uh, who are at high risk for progressing to severe disease, but who were outpatients. 
Um, this is the study, the Blaze One trial, uh, that showed benefit of the monoclonal antibodies and got the FDA um, emergency use authorization approval. Now, they did allow for administration of the medication to hospitalize patients, but only if they were admitted for a reason other than COVID. So if they had an acute exacerbation of congestive heart failure and COVID and they um, got admitted and you wanted to prevent readmission, uh, you could give it at that point. Uh, they also felt that pregnancy should not be a reason for refusing uh, to offer the infusion. The other combination monoclonal antibody, Casarivimab uh, with the Imdevimab, uh, was the first one actually to be authorized back in November. Um, and it was authorized for the treatment of mild to moderate coronavirus disease in adults, uh, as well as pediatric patients um, above 12 years old, um, who had positive testing and that were, again, high risk for progressing to severe disease um, and or hospitalization. So it was not authorized for use in inpatients. Uh, it wasn't authorized for patients that needed oxygenation therapy. So there were a lot of exclusionary criteria. However, that was for uh, use with emergency use authorization. You are able to give it to hospitalized patients or patients that were not included in the EUA, but you have to go through the uh, compassionate use uh, pathway, and it is quite a bit of paperwork, but it can be done if you feel your patient needs it. So here is the uh, trial um, that showed uh, with the results that showed why the authorization of this combination uh, monoclonal antibody was approved. I find it very interesting that they're now looking at uh, lower doses uh, with this medication, which is extremely important because number one, this will decrease uh, uh, reaction risks with infusions, as well as making more medicine available to more people. Now, we should talk a little bit about bamlanivimab. Uh, a few weeks ago, the government halted distribution of this medicine as monotherapy uh, because we were starting to see some more resistance um, with some of the variants. And this is a nice slide um, that shows that uh, there is indeed some uh, problems with uh, bamlanivimab by itself and its efficacy against the variants. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier in my slides, um, this actually just yesterday came down as a complete removal from the um, recommendations from the NIH to use it as a monotherapy at all. So bamlanivimab as monotherapy is no longer recommended and it has been removed from the guidelines. And with that, I will give it back to Dr. Mercado to wrap everything up. Thank you, Dr. Bell. Uh, this is just a kind of a reminder of our messenger RNA vaccines. We have the Pfizer that showed the 95% efficacy and Moderna that showed 94% efficacy at the time of the EUA. Also, at which time they had about uh, two months uh, worth of uh, trial data what has really been uh, reassuring, I would say, is that the real world experience has been echoing uh, what uh, was found in the uh, trial data with uh, Pfizer, for example, uh, showing 90, 
uh, above a 90% efficacy in the real world. Uh, and also that it seems that the uh, ro uh, immune response uh, appeared to be robust, lasting now uh, up to about six months uh, with the half-life of the virus neutralization now estimated to be at 202 days. The other controversial thing about messenger RNA uh, vaccines have been the anaphylaxis uh, or the risk of anaphylaxis. And it is important to note that uh, the risk of anaphylaxis with these vaccines remain rare. We did, however, identify a, de a delayed large local reaction with the Moderna vaccine. This is thought to be a delayed type or T-cell-mediated hypersensitivity. And it is important to note that this is not a contraindication for patients to complete the course. Um, there was a, a, a recent uh, update in the Annals of Internal Medicine where uh, two patients who received uh, or required treatment for hypersensitivity reactions with the first dose of the Moderna vaccine were able to receive their uh, second dose without major complications when it was administered in graded doses. I think this was a study amongst a handful of others that tried to address the question of, uh, given the limited number of vaccines, do we not reserve the second doses and just vaccinate as many people uh, as we can with first doses? And what this particular study found that after the first dose of uh, the messenger RNA vaccine, that there was the antibody response was variable and low in those who were zero negative, but uniformly high in the uh, zero positive group. Now, transitioning over to our viral vector vaccines, uh, the one that has the emergency use right now is the Janssen vaccine, which uh, is generally well tolerated. And as you can see, those these are the common uh, side effects that include headache, fatigue, and myalgia. What has been somewhat controversial, uh, maybe more so with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is another viral vector vaccine, is the reports around thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. And it, again, is important to note that uh, these uh, side effects are felt to be very rare. And our expectation is that AstraZeneca will apply for the EUA uh, within this month, which is good in, in terms of supply. Uh, now, as far as efficacy is concerned, we did see uh, that uh, the Janssen vaccine is effective at a 66% efficacy rate, and that uh, efficacy rate goes up, particularly in your severe and uh, critical ill um, uh, patient population. And I think one of the advantages of these uh, newer vaccines compared uh, with the viral vector vaccines when compared to the messenger RNA vaccines is that uh, some of their trial data included uh, data, uh, countries where we started to see uh, the variants of concern. Which is what I would like to uh, transition to. So the uh, big three uh, uh, variants uh, that we're monitoring is the B117, or more commonly known as the UK variant, the B1351, or the South African variant, and the B uh, or the P1, which is the one from Brazil. Now we've had. Uh, 
uh, additions to this, namely uh, the New York variant, which is currently just a variant of interest. Uh, that would be your B1526 and B1525, and the couple of variants added to the variants of concern is the B1427 or B1429, which is uh, the California variant. And the uh, concern really is the increased transmissibility uh, how they might cause more uh, severe disease uh, and how this would translate to more hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, we did identify the escape mutations. Uh, and if a variant does uh, show significant decreased immunity from previous infection, decreased neutralizing ability of convalescent plasma or monoclonal antibody, and or decreased immunity from COVID-19 vaccines, then they are uh, then upgraded somewhat to the variants of high consequence. And the good news thus far is that we do have preliminary studies that uh, are the current vaccines that we have have neutralizing activity against these emerging variants. So in summary, uh, we have learned today that monoclonal antibody treatments are available for outpatients at high risk of progressing to severe disease or hospitalization. We've also learned that antiviral treatment with remdesivir is FDA approved for all hospitalized patients, but recommendations for use vary by organization and center. Antiviral and antibody-based therapies appear to work best if administered as early as possible. And dexamethasone has lowered mortality rates in patients with severe and critical COVID-19. With that, I would like to thank everyone uh, for listening to us. And I uh, do want to give a shout out to my co-host for The Cure. That includes Dr. Marshall Ward, Dr. Amol Karnik, Dr. Mahati Komayagiri, and Dr. Rima Mercado. If folks are interested in learning more about COVID-19, then uh, this is available on Apple as well as uh, Android platforms. With that, I would uh, like to turn it over back to Faith. Great. Dr. Mercado, Dr. Bell, thank you so much for all of that really important information and really appreciate that. Um, as a note, these slides will be available after the webinar and they should be available now in the resource window after pressing refresh on your browser. To our learners, please ask any questions you may have for a faculty um, that you can think of right now by submitting them in the Q&A box. But first, let's revisit our knowledge questions together. Okay, our first question is, a 22-year-old previously healthy patient with no underlying conditions has mild COVID-19. Which of the following is or are recommended for this patient? Dexamethasone, monoclonal antibodies, home isolation and symptom monitoring only, or remdesivir? Okay, and while you're answering that, this is what we said before. We said home isolation and symptom monitoring only is what most of you said. And this time around, um, even more of you said that. So fantastic. Um, Dr. Mercado, Dr. Bell, did you want to expand on this at all? I feel like it speaks for itself. It does. I have nothing more to add. Fantastic. Moving on to the next post-test question. Monoclonal antibody products are authorized to treat which group of patients with confirmed COVID-19? Is that any patient, any non-hospitalized patient, 18 years of age or older, non-hospitalized patients, 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease, 
or patients hospitalized for COVID-19 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support. Okay, it looks like uh, we came pretty close between these two non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older and patients hospitalized uh, 12 years of age or older requiring oxygen support. Um, so let's see what you said in the post. Okay, and most of you said non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age or older at high risk for severe disease. Um, so Dr. Bell, Dr. Mercado, what was the correct answer here? So the correct answer um, for the emergency use authorization is non-hospitalized patients 12 years of age and older at high risk for severe disease. So any non-hospitalized patient 18 of years of age or older um, is um, kind of correct, but not completely. The point to the monoclonal antibodies is for those patients at high risk um, to give them the infusion in order to prevent pro progression to severe disease and hospitalization. Um, as of right now, hospitalized patients do not have emergency use authorization to get the medication. Uh, however, you can give it to them if you feel it's needed, but you have to go through the compassionate use pathway. Okay, great, thank you. So let's go to process question three. According to, um, in, in, hosp in hospitalized patients with COVID-19, intravenous remdesivir compared to placebo shortened illness duration by a median of, it does appear that this is the wrong question. Um, so let me read off of the other thing. According to ACT-1 pivotal trial, which group of patients benefited the, One moment, please. Okay, it appears that uh, the the stem here is incorrect. So in hospitalized patients with COVID, according to the ACT-1 pivotal trial, which group of patients benefited the most from remdesivir? This is the question that we're asking. Um, all included patients benefited equally, patients not receiving oxygen, patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO, or patients receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO. My apologies for that. Thank you everyone for your patience there. Um, looks like most of you in the pretest did say patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO. Uh, so let's see how we did in the post test. Okay, and despite all of that confusion, a few more of you did say patients on oxygen not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So what was the correct answer here to our faculty? Yeah, I think we got this right. Uh, the, you know, again, uh, you have to correlate uh, your treatment to the pathogenesis of the disease. So early on in the disease process, it would be your viral phase. So you would be thinking about your antivirals and as the patient progresses and later on to uh, in their disease uh, would be your anti-inflammatories uh, when they go into more of the um, uh, uh, immune-mediated response phase of the disease. Fantastic, thank you. And this is our final post-test question. It is, which monoclonal antibody currently has the best data about retained potency against circulating variants such as P1 or B1351? Uh, is that bamlanivimab, bamlanivimab, and etezivimab? 
casirivimab and imdevimab? Or is it all of the above? Okay, and it looks like most of you said in the pretest, bamlanivimab and etizivimab. Let's see what you said in the post today. Okay, it looks like most of you in the post said casirivimab and imdevimab. So what was the correct answer we were looking for here? So the correct answer is the casirivimab and the imdevimab. Um, for those of you who are downloading the slides, I believe it is slide number 53 that had the table. Um, keep in mind, bamlanivimab is no longer recommended as monotherapy. So that should not be your answer um, for this test or for your uh, therapeutic options. The bamlanivimab and uh, atesivimab um, has some um, issues with the variants, not as bad as the bamlanivimab bamlanivimab alone, but so far the kesirivimab and the imdevimab has retained uh, potency against all circulating variants. Fantastic. Thank you to both of you for clarifying those for us. Um, as a reminder, as we move into the Q&A segment, to submit a question, please click the Q&A button in the console, and we will try to get to as many questions as time allows. So our first question today, faculty, is if an individual has received both doses or one of the mRNA vaccines and then later, say after one month, begins to experience symptoms of COVID, should they receive a dose of monoclonal antibodies or a booster of one of the mRNA vaccines? I'm happy to start off. Uh, one is I would say that I would not necessarily uh, maybe expect that. Uh, and I say that because what the data does show thus far, um, if for whatever reason, uh, a patient who has completed a course of the vaccine uh, is reinfected, that they tend to uh, experience more of the mild to uh, asymptomatic disease. Now, if uh, it is a person who is at high risk, of severe disease, uh, then one, it would be a risk-benefit discussion. I wouldn't say that they should not be uh, a, um, uh, uh, eligible to the monoclonal antibody. I just don't know about uh, giving them a, a booster dose. We still have a lot to learn as to booster doses and, and the virus. Um, Dr. Bell, uh, anything to add? Yeah, so a lot of it is going to be dependent upon your patient. Um, so one of the things I have done uh, when I've come into these situations is uh, test the patient for antibodies. Um, your immunocompromised patients, uh, especially your hypogamma globulinemia patients, um, say, for example, after therapy for um, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, that type of thing, if they're not able to produce antibodies, the vaccines may not be as effective for them. So if you test and if they do not have um, a, a therapeutic level of antibodies, um, then giving them an infusion of monoclonal antibody may be indicated. Um, you may also want to try um, a different 
vaccine, um, like a vector rather than the um, uh, RNA uh, side, just to see if you can stimulate the immune system in a different way. So uh, I will echo what Dr. Mercado said. Most of the time when patients um, get the infection after having the uh, vaccines, that it is um, much milder and they do not require any therapy uh, and just need um, supportive care at home. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, one learner did ask, has your health systems or your health systems come up with a process for getting high-risk patients on monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies? I can speak to uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, uh, which is uh, since it is now recommended by NIH and IDSA, uh, we are uh, figuring out a way to offer it uh, with it in the system. Um, I, it is challenging uh, because of the logistics and operational uh, things that you need to figure out. So not currently, but soon uh, for Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I'm not sure about Oklahoma. Yeah, so um, I uh, am also a locums physician, and I do uh, vacation coverage for infectious disease docs uh, all around the United States. Um, so the experience that I've had in different regions um, is uh, pretty universal um, and similar to what Dartmouth is doing. So what I have seen is that this is typically given in emergency rooms, um, and we've tried to keep it out of urgent cares because of the logistical issues with it. So patients that present to an urgent care will probably be sent to an emergency room in order to receive it. Um, but we've set up protocols for um, set um, symptoms and the risk factors that would put them at high risk for developing disease. And then we have uh, the pharmacists usually in the emergency rooms helping with the infusion and the ordering and making sure that they meet that emergency use criteria. Fantastic. And Dr. Bell, I'll actually pass this one to you too. Do you anticipate that resistance will continue to be a problem in the future? And if so, does that mean our monoclonal antibodies will have to change? Absolutely. Uh, that's kind of the MO of the coronavirus. It loves to mutate and change and, and modify based on the environment around it. So we will continue to see resistances and, and variants of concern develop um, while it's uh, even getting into in its endemic phase. Um, and I am sure as the pharmaceutical companies have done in the last year, they will step up and change their monoclonal antibodies to reflect this change. I also anticipate the vaccine industry to try to modify their um, products as well. And I just wanted to add a little bit to that. So going back, it's really the viral replication that drives some of these mutations. So uh, to try and curb it, uh, you want to stop viral uh, replication. And, and for us to be able to stop that is we need to achieve herd immunity. We need to uh, follow the mitigation strategy so that th there's no uh, transmission of disease, there's no reinfection, and it would make it less likely for these uh, variants to uh, uh, be predominant and or continue to mutate uh, uh, into having this is escape mutations. Agree well, 100%. Well put, thank you. Um, our next question is, can a patient who received one type of vaccine for the first dose receive a different vaccine for their second dose? 
I can start. Um, so the CDC does have guidelines around the interchangeability of uh, the vaccines. Uh, for where we currently are, we do want to avoid that as much as possible. Um, so not currently, but it is an option, uh, I guess, uh, for extreme uh, circumstances. Now, uh, what I'm hearing, though, from uh, vaccine experts is that there may be uh, some benefits uh, into uh, the in, into interchangeability and in how that relates to uh, uh, producing a re robust immune response. Okay. Um, can you pre briefly discuss the use of monoclonal antibody for prevention of disease in high-risk patients, such as uh, in household exposure? There is not currently any data that I have read about this. Um, currently, the emergency use authorization is limited to patients that have tested positive and have high risks. This is um, not uh, been studied yet, or if it's, uh, it might be in the process of being a prophylactic type medicine, but there is absolutely no um, data for me to be able to share with you regarding this. Fantastic. Yeah, I Oh, just go ahead, Dr. Uh, sorry, Faith. I think I would like to add to what Dr. Bell just said is, is that there is a consideration for those who are not eligible um, uh, for the vaccine as some sort of post-exposure prophylaxis, but we have yet to receive uh, data around that. And of course, it has to go through the usual emergency use uh, process. Okay, thank you. Um, Dr. Mercado, is it possible that the variants may eventually affect the efficacy of remdesivir? Uh, that is the concern, as uh, Dr. Bell uh, had um, expressed in uh, the other question around uh, monoclonal uh, antibodies, uh, is that as they, these variants uh, mutate. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's it's hard to tell right now where this is going to go. It really, again, depends on uh, we want to have more shots in the arms uh, and less uh, uh, transmission of the virus. And that's the way the way to uh, beat this. Okay, thank you. Um, and I'll toss this one up. How, how do we weigh the benefits versus the risk of using monoclonal antibodies in patients with chronic disease? So I'll, I'll take this one uh, and start out. Uh, so this is not going to be any different than doing risks versus benefits in any therapeutic option that we give to our patients. Um, the side effects of monoclonal antibodies um, have not been bad. Um, so the downsides are, are not a whole lot. Um, the biggest risk, of, of course, is infusion reactions. Um, the risk of it not working well because um, patients that are at high risk may also be immunocompromised. And if you don't have an immune system, then trying to stimulate an immune system that's not present may not be uh, as beneficial. Um, but typically what we have to worry about is um, being able to stay during the infusion, being watched for afterwards, um, and then looking to see it, is there risk um, based on what the, the list is on the CDC and the NIH for what their high risks are. It also depends on how sick they are. So if they're still in the 
ER and they're decompensating and you think they're going to be admitted, um, there was a warning in the monoclonal antibody studies not to give it to patients that needed ICU level of care, were very sick, were needing supplemental oxygen. Um, the monoclonal antibodies tend to overstimulate the immune system. And those are the patients that their immune systems already overstimulated and tend to flip into ARDS. And so there's a fine line. You definitely want to give it in patients that have uh, no uh, current reason for hospitalization and that are fairly stable but at risk for it. And you're trying to prevent them to progress to disease. If they've already progressed to severe disease, you, you want to avoid that in these patients. Okay, and the last question, and thank you everybody for your questions. Uh, we, we had so many great ones and we hope to get to some of these in future webinars, so please do keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, but our final question today is, um, are there any new treatments coming down uh, for hospitalized patients that we should keep an eye out for? I think the challenging thing with COVID-19 is uh, I would say maybe every couple of weeks we hear about some uh, another novel uh, treatment um, with uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Uh, Lenzilumab is uh, one of those that may be uh, up and coming. But uh, yes, I, I guess this is just another reason to um, uh, keep, try and uh, keep uh, pace with the amount of information uh, going out in uh, avenues like this one is really helpful to have uh, uh, to have up to date uh, information. Yeah, and, and this is one of the reasons why I had recommended earlier um, to be able to um, get onto the NIH uh, treatment, the COVID treatment website. When you get on that, if you tag it onto a browser or something, you can also get emailed updates. Um, there was a um, an, another uh, trial of a medication of oral antivirals. It's um, molnumipravir um, that was on a Medscape update just uh, sent out yesterday. Um, but again, some of these trials that are coming out um, uh, or, or these studies that are coming out are very low numbers. Like th that one was just 49 patients. So uh, understanding how to how to read the trials, how to understand um, the studies and, and if they truly um, reflect what we need in the hospital, it, it's really hard to make quick decisions based on um, short white papers or, or low-powered studies. Uh, so I would imagine it, it's going to take a little bit for any new therapies to come down, especially since our current therapies seem to be decreasing our um, mortality rates quite a bit. Okay, fantastic to both of you. Uh, thank you for answering all of those questions. Um, for our audience, if you would like to claim credit, you can please click the claim credit button that will appear after the webcast ends. Please also do be on the lookout for our 30-day survey, which you will receive through email. So as always, your responses will help us develop further education. And we thank you for joining us and would also like to thank Dr. Mercado and Dr. Bell one more time. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Faith.